You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Burns. And we are your co-hosts on Future Theater Live tonight, Monday, June 27th, 2016, on Future Theater, broadcasting live on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network. And our guest tonight is Richard Smith. Who will talk about? I, he's got a fascinating new book. I have to uh, about it's Moors the mysterious and, and, and elusive Richard Smith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hi, Chris. With our producer, hello. with hello. our producer Angel Espino. Say Hi, hello, Angel. Angel. Hello, Angel. Nancy, Bill, hello, Chris, and uh, Chris Brown, who hello, brought us our guest tonight. Ah, yes. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Thank you, Chris. Hi, Chris. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> how did you? How did hey, you come? How did you come to find Richard for us? Uh, through Jaffe, Jaffe Ryder. He was, uh, him and I were kind of doing a show together. He had had him on as a guest, and then he had talked about how he was on here before doing a show. I, uh, I wrote it to you when I, before, I don't know what it was about, but, and, John, uh, John, John Ford. That's yeah, it. It's a John Ford show, right? Yep. And so, and he had had another book, and so I said, okay, I ran him by Nancy, and, he wanted to come on again, and she said, okay, bring him on, and well, here he is. Mm, here we are. Oh, yep. See, it's like magic. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like magic. It is. Um, because, Abracadabra. You know, yeah, I, I consider a Richard a friend, and he's he's someone who is sort of one of the backbones of ufology. He's not a fly-by-night person, so, you know, knowing he was going to be the guest, I sat back, and knowing Chris had set it up, I sat back, and I sat back, and I sat back, and I only got the page up just within hours, and I really have been doing my homework all the rest of the afternoon, so I think tonight's show is going to be super cool and different, but I have some to- I have some topics, guys. I have some topics that I hope you'll indulge me just at the beginning of the show. Yes? Yes. Oh, I'm ready. Yes. Yeah, okay. yes. Um, first of all, away, okay. First of all, um, I read the most amazing piece online. This is not a repeat, Lou. This is brand new, brand new. In fact, this I'm yeah, going Lou. to I'm going to give you information right this minute that you two bits of information that that have to do with punctuation, and you just aren't going to believe it. Number one, there was an article um, in one of the newspapers, New York Times or something. Washington Post, something like that. The period is dead. That if you, as an older person, put periods in the instant messages that you do to your kids and stuff, kids take that as um, sort of like mm, like you're scolding them. You're supposed to just treat it like poetry and just no punctuation at the end. The period's except, almost like an exclamation except, point now. Except if you're texting on a smartphone. Just te- I'm, just te- I'm just telling you. If you're texting on a smartphone mm-hmm. and hit a double space, mm-hmm. it automatically puts a period in the capital. Yes, it does, but that's where it's appropriate. It's at the very end. Think of, think of instant messaging like poetry. And this has kind of loosened my brain as an English major, as a grown-up English major who cares about things like this. 
I have never known how to punctuate or how to act on instant message and on Skype. Hello, Skype buddies. There's so many Skype periods buddies here. I, but here's how you do it, guys. If you're old enough to know or if you're young and smart, you will have heard of the poet E.E. E. Cummings. That's, he has, he has taken over the world. Think E.E. E. Cummings. Everybody, when I was growing up, went through a tiny little E.E. E. Cummings period where you, you made everything lowercase. It was sophomoric. I loved it though for that little bit of time. I knew it was sophomoric. I knew it had to end. Some people have kept it, however, throughout their whole lives. There are a few people that I've known online since, say, 94. Bowerbird is one person. Um, she's on all these mailing lists I'm on, or he, or whatever has always kept everything lowercase. And it gets irritating, I admit. It, it is. It's annoying. Okay, so, but anyway, if you want to be beloved of your young children, friends, or if you've ever worried about how you should punctuate, uh, it, so you don't want to look stupid in, in instant messages, right? You want to look smart. And yet it kind of forces you to say stupid things like, how are you, and stuff. Within a, so that, so that's that's... That's thing number one. Thing number two is much more serious, but it's about punctuation. Super serious. Super serious. And it involves my beloved Belgab, a place I like to go and hang out and read stuff. Okay. Oh, and boy. those, yeah, and those people here who've been on Belgab know where I'm going. And, um, and before I go there, I want to do some shout outs because it's going to get heavy. So Amy oh, M, Amy M, feel better. Amy C, hang in there. Soroya. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And Soroya. Yay. She's, she's, um, I think page 290, uh, on her second book. She's my inspiration and I hope she keeps on writing and she's, that's her second book already. Anyway. Um, and we, so anyway, so Belgab is a place where you go and you, well, Belgab has uh -huh. been, okay. Have you ever, you Angel or you Chris, have you ever come across so far? In the last few weeks, three parentheses around somebody, some a word on either side, like hugs, but only three on either side. Yeah, maybe somewhere. Not that it's jumping out at me. I can remember. No, I can't remember. No. One thing I have noticed, though, with more and more people online, and, and I don't know if this is like an epidemic of people that you know are just not learning correctly or or what, uh, but I see people like putting a space after a sentence, then the period, then another space, and they continue another sentence right after that. So what I, do you mean? What do you mean? It's the most dumbest thing I've ever seen, but I, I what, constantly what, see it on Facebook. What are you like, talking about? They'll, they'll start a sentence, whatever the sentence is, right. instead of putting a period at the very end of the sentence, or a comma, or whatever, to continue you know, and change, whatever. instead of doing something like that, what they do is they give they put a space, a period, another space, and then they, they start a new sentence. Well, that's just stupid. That's what I'm saying, but I see yeah, that all the time. Stupid. Well, you know that, uh, okay, so. Proving my point that this world is full of idiots. Okay, but here's, here's way worse. There, um, there are far right, uh, 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 neo Nazi groups on, online. Okay, they're all over the web. And sometimes, sometimes the people from those groups come on to, like, sites. Like, like we might get somebody in our Skype chat, or somebody might come into Belgab. And there might be more than one or there might be just one. In any event, saying really, really, really crappy stuff about the Holocaust never existed and stuff. And I saw for the first time the three uh, parentheses around a name. And so you look it up and you realize it's the way this, um, this you know, like Stormfront and the real far right horrible groups who believe that certain people just by 
accident of birth should be wiped off the face of the earth. It's insanity. But they put three parentheses around to show Jews. Okay? It's horrible. And it infected Belgab. And it kind of, you know, at first nobody knew what it meant and then this and that. And, you know, I think that. That's intolerable. It really is. Yeah, I wanted to get your opinion about that. In other words, if uh, if if there are people who do not believe the Holocaust existed, and that's that's what they're saying. Mm. Um, and I t- I went on Belgab and and I hated to do this, but I felt like I did. I, I have to speak up, and I mentioned in just a couple sentences about my father's photos. Get your father's photos. My father's photos. Get the photos. I well somehow I I need to, and. Um, but anyway, we're, we've been out of touch, so to speak. My father died. But my father was one of the people liberating the camps. And since he was an amateur photographer, he was he went through all the troops from Eisenhower. I think it was Eisenhower's idea when he saw what they were seeing. Anybody who could, please photograph. So that there's got to be a document about this. This is unbelievable. You're not Nobody's going to believe us. So my father pho- photographed. And when I was little, uh, my father would be up in the middle of the night, obviously PTSD, uh, playing the piano, drunk, uh, looking at his pictures and stuff. And I would get up and I once saw the pictures. And I was only five or six. But I remember thinking something on, on the order, and, and our guest Richard Smith will understand this. What kind of planet have I gotten myself? What, what have a kind of planet have I come to? I actually had that thought. What have I done? People who could do this, this isn't where I want to be. This is unbelievable. And people think it doesn't, it didn't exist, didn't happen. And that terrifies me, just terrifies me with the whole, you know, we want to purge the world of Muslims now. It's not Jews right now, but it's always Jews. So that is heavy, but hello, Belgab. Um, and there you go. And three parentheses. If you see it in a beloved space where you have had lots of fun and you fight with everybody and it's free speech, you might stand up and say, you know what? Screw you. That's right. Get out. You know? Like Spartacus. I think everybody should put them around their names and then that just defuses it. It's gone. That's what people Damn are doing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Yeah. Nothing, nothing I hate more than uh, – People who are prejudiced against other people's cultural backgrounds or religious beliefs or mm-hmm. nationalities. You know, nothing I hate more. Or the yeah. Dutch. One or the other. <laughs> or the Dutch. Dutch. This is Dutch. Dutch. I don't like the Dutch. Yeah, hate they the hate Dutch. everybody. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have had, um, on, on the flip side, we're, oh my goodness, we, we changed our TV thing from TiVo. That's a story. Um, to That's this news thing, right there, yeah. Yeah, to this thing called Xfinity. Xfinity. Oh. They, they come out, they give you the box, and they yeah. say... You know, and you know, you can't, you can't, um, stop your TiVo billing, um, online. You have to call them and oh my God, it's like breaking up with a really clingy, really clingy loser girl. It's it's like, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) I understand that. I just had to cancel my phone service here connected with my cable and that there was a whole entire procedure. Like, oh my God. So you have Xfinity Comcast now. Welcome to my Guilty. (laughs) Yeah, but my goodness, we have it. And, uh, suddenly, uh, see, poor TiVo, uh, everybody was plotting against them at this point. <laughs> and 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 the H well, you know we pay for HBO but it was getting throttled you couldn't you know you would record it would be full of like digital artifacts it doesn't want you to record TiVo so now we're we're catching up on stuff and this Mr Robot is just blowing my mind we are almost finished it we're going through all of Veep which we'd missed and but Mr Robot I, I'm just kind of pushing a bit 
Yeah, that's on Plex. I still haven't gotten to see that. Um, yeah, right. it's worth it. it. And, and, and you know you're what? not even sure if the guy is like. Don't how- say it. Do not say it. Do not say it. That's like telling the end of Spoilers. Sixth Sense. Do not say it because I'm not even sure. I know sure the spoiler in Veep too now. No, don't tell me. Do not tell me. Ah. Oh. Anyway, so yeah. And so today, uh, in, in news, uh, Elizabeth Warren um, and Hillary Clinton, you know, on the stage wearing the same outfits. It's too weird. Same it's like It's like they're going to they're gonna do each other's braids or... Whoa. You know. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I'm, you oh, know... Barbie twins. When I was in, in high school and stuff and grade school and high school, we had all kinds of ways the girls could kind of show that they were friendly with other girls. We had circle pins. Right. It was. It's great. This yeah. is like this is like the sixties all over again. Right. We used to collect things like that. We oh, and then we once had a one year we collected scatter pins. They were you'd buy scatter pins in sets of two, and then you'd find a girl that you liked. This is girl stuff. This is not homosexual. It's just girl stuff. And so the girls with tons of scatter pins on their chests on their Angora sweaters would be popular because they were, had shared it with many, many, many people. Oh, I love, I love our culture. I love you do, you do that now and you'll be, you'll be outed as a, like a lesbian or a gay guy. That's like, show. This is yeah. show. You can't, yeah. do that. you can't do that anymore. No. no. Yeah. Yeah. And keep a lighter away from the, the Angora uh, sweatshirts. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. a good idea too. That's a yeah. good idea. Yeah. Isn't that, uh, isn't that uh, the feature of uh, the wood? You know, remember the wood, the filmmaker, he was Ed, wearing oh, Ed Wood, right? Ed Wood, yeah, Ed Wood. And there was one of the movies was called I Somebody lo- I in loved Angora. Angora I sweaters. Yeah. On girls. On boys. Yes. <laughs> by the way, great movie by Johnny Depp, Ed Wood. Oh, fabulous! It was a good movie. movie. Yeah, poor yeah. Johnny Depp. Should have won an Oscar for that. He really should have. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. when an Oscar passes someone by that they obviously should get it. I think it kind of scrunches them. Like obviously DiCaprio, a lot of people think it scrunched him, <clears throat> but the person it most scrunched, I think. Is the guy who played Mozart in Almadeus? He wow, was, really? Yeah. Oh, F. Murray Abraham? No, no, no. He got he got everybody that was everybody who was connected with that movie got the award. But the guy who had that irritating laugh, who played Mozart, he played Mozart as a fun young crazy guy. Right. He's the same guy yeah. that was in Animal House. Yeah. Yes, but I don't know his was name. Was he really? Oh mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And. Um, he just became it, embittered it just because right. everybody was honored, and yet that movie hangs together on his fabulous performance as Mozart. Right. And then the big question is, who should have gotten it? Should he have gotten it, or should F. Murray Abraham, who was well, playing Solieri, who, who eventually got who got it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wow. still mad Jim Carrey didn't oh, win an goodness. Oscar for the uh, for the Majestic. Uh, say again. Oh, that was a good movie. You're right. Yeah, yeah I'm surprised Jim Carrey didn't get an Oscar for the Majestic. <laughs> I don't think I we saw Ring a Bell with Majestic. We where, saw that. Yeah. It was, it's a drama. He actually uh, was very good in it. I mean, it's uh, about a uh, person who has amnesia, and he shows up at a town. And right. they mistake him for a, a veteran who had died in the war because he looked just like this guy. And the uh, the father of that veteran was a theater owner in this theater called Theater Majestic, I believe was the name of the, uh, the place, hmm. and uh, the Majestic Theater. And uh, he took him in like that was his son and then slowly you know i don't want to get too much too much away but he starts remembering who he really is and there's a, a really cool. really good drama behind the whole thing so it's well, a beautiful love story i mean jim carrey was phenomenal in that movie i always looked at that and i was like that was his one chance to right. win an oscar that or probably spotless mind 
That was another great yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I, oh, I, I think that one he too. loves acting, I think, and I think an Oscar will be his at some point, but you're right. I, just you know, I hope good. so. I hope so, because he is such a fabulous actor, and he's really underrated, completely yep. underrated as an actor. I mean, right. he's, he's a comedy guy, so that's they look at him as, oh, mm-hmm. you know, he's Ace Ventura. That's what they see right. him, Dumb exactly. and Dumber. Well, but he is a good of, yeah. actor. I mean, he was in a drama before, sorry, not, sorry to cut you off, Nancy, but he was yeah. in a really good drama. Um, right before East Ventura came out, it was a TV movie. It was called Doing Time on Maple Drive. I saw it. It was fabulous. Yes. He yes. was phenomenal. They, if they could have given him an award mm-hmm. for that TV yeah. movie, he should have, he, he deserved it because he was just phenomenal you, in that. You know, he did also in the Deadpool with with Clint Eastwood at the very beginning. He yes. was Johnny whatever the heroin junkie that yep. they, he yep. died off, and he did a great job on yep. that. Oh, he is he is a hell of an actor. He really is a hell of an actor, and mm-hmm. uh, just completely okay, the, um, um I have to and, and a big shout out, the hugest Uh-oor. shout out of the week, which I almost forgot, is P- PJ Zimmerlink has made a badge. A badge for future theater. You know, like oh, how, I, thought, I thought it was a batch or something good. No, you know? a badge. Never, like never you know how astronauts have badges or people in the space program yeah. if you're in a squadron well he made a badge that's so adorable and anyway he he puts in this um and we'll 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 make it available somehow we're going to put it on stuff or do something with it um tom holch holsey tom holz holz tom holz who was right he now he plays retards a lot and he eventually came Mentally out of disturbed children. oh <laughs> yeah that's right. not very pc yeah he plays a retard uh, yeah yeah, you know those, those kids were retardation. Yeah, they're retards. Yeah, that's the downside <laughs> of sitting in the same room. See, we're in the same room with Bill, and it's like I'm talking to Bill as though we are private. Because <laughs> we were having a private little party before the show. I I would love to be able to play the tunes again because we were playing tunes and reminiscing, and we we used Actually, to do you that. You can play the tunes now. I mean, you could play it on your end over there. Ha- yeah, I have but- to figure out how to do that. Maybe you have to kind of walk me through. Walk me through. Oh, a bigger shout out of all. The biggest Uh-oh. shout out of all. Nobody will know why because I'm never going to tell. But Aww. a really big hello to Mr. Keith Rowland. Uh-huh. 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 Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm just saying. The, I mean, something so amazing happened. And then... Um, and then I, but I'm not talking. I'm not going to say a word. It's just so a why, big thing. So why would you big bring it up? You. She always does that. No, no, no. I bring it up so that he knows how excite, how wonderful and exciting. And it's just a thank you. It's just a little something. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's not the future. It's nothing like that. Eek, the worst. Now I, now I have to get out of the hole that I've just dug. Well, with the, the, uh, step one, stop getting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I'm actually yeah, reading, a, I'm reading a book right now. On something I thought I would never join called Scribed. I, I'm kind of liking it. Hate Scribed. I know, but they it's like a little lending library and I'm reading a book called What's The Art scribed? of The Art of Communicating or The Art of Communication. Oh, it's a good book to read when you're doing radio. It is. And and, and yep. it talks about stuff like this and I can tell you right now, I'm learning. I'm learning how to, you know, speak properly. I'm you just saying see it, how it's, many it's, of my books are up on Scribe people get them oh, up. Yeah. And, yeah. I haven't talked to Keith in uh, a few weeks. So. No, have you? Have you? Well. Um, let's see here. And in fact, there was a kerfuffle. That's how this all came about. There was a kerfuffle because we botched it at the end. I was going to say, stay tuned for Midnight in the Desert and who was Heather. <clears throat> and I looked at Bill like I was thinking, like, who's Heather's guest? Because we used to say, now, since we're not live, when we're on there, we just say, stay tuned for Midnight in the Desert. And that is the way to clean it up and just... 
Yeah, but, every day you're yeah, listening. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, th- I don't think. Yeah, no, but I don't think we're, the show is it playing before her show at any point. Yes, 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 does. yes. Okay, yes. so he is playing it on Tuesday yes, nights. On Tuesday we play nights. right before Heather Wade. You see. Mm-hmm. So let me get this straight. He he he's playing the 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 podcast. He sits there. He puts it on and plays it. Why doesn't he just rebroadcast it live on Mondays? I don't know. I think it has to do with technology, with robotics. I think uh-huh. I think he's got sense. algorithms now who do the work of many people. And so he's got it automated, I believe, that he can sleep through this period. You know, because hmm. he has it all queued up. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is going on. Every, every night is all queued up. Mm-hmm. Ah. Perhaps. Who knows? Um, I do Makes not sense. know. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Art of Communicating by the Vietnamese monk that I love, and I'm learning how to say his name, Tick Not Han. Tick Not Han. It is not spelled like that at all. There's a whole bunch of extra uh, consonants. Is he Canadian? No, he's Vietnamese. Oh, I could have never guessed. Uh-huh. Tick Not Han. I'll, I'll learn it. I was being sarcastic. And why would yeah. a Vietnamese monk mm-hmm. he's totally be talking brilliant. about communication? Because he, every book he writes, and every, he's the fellow that I learned how to do a mantra from, which I hope to teach anybody that wants to learn it. It's sort of, he, he brought um, all, so much Eastern stuff to the kids at Berkeley in the 60s, okay, the early 60s. He was the guy who taught Zen Buddhism and meditation at Berkeley. So a lot of kids kind of learned under him. He's old now, very old. Um, but he's written books all this time, and he's very plain speaking, and he knows the Western mind. That's the thing I love about it. You know, he knows what the power is all about, and he knows how the Western mind is very competitive, and you can get into kind of almost an OCD loop that you that keeps you from sleep. Let's say, and you read his books, and you just I find I find them incredibly interesting um, because I've always felt bad when I it takes a lot out of me to write an email. And whenever I write an email, I feel like I've, I feel exhausted afterwards, some of them. Some of them are very tense and difficult to write because you've got to do a bunch of different things. And as the editor, uh, where I would, of uh, UFO, where I'd be turning people down or encouraging people, there was a lot of work involved. And now you see that he tells you that when you do all that, you're not taking time from your own writing. You're actually learning how to communicate. And it's, it, it, it behooves you. To do that and not begrudge the fact that you're not doing your own stuff. That's why I find it. <sighs> okay. I mean, there you uh, go. Sometimes I tie myself in my own knots. Okay. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, at least sorry. you're on time. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So PJ Zimmerling put the um, the banner. It's not a banner. It's a It's a, it's a patch. It's, it's adorable. It's a, yeah, right. Yeah. And we worked on it, and if anybody can translate, and I'm looking at you, Benjamin, if you're here, um, the Latin, then they will know what the Latin is. What is it, Aramaic? No, No, it's just Latin. Oh. I think it's sort of made up by P.J. Zimmerlink, who is an artist, by the way. And um, Is it pig Latin? No, it's regular Latin. 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 Uh Latin, Okay, Latin would be fun to learn. If you have um, Latin or Greek right now would be a cool thing to learn if you're... Just looking for something new. I would add Latin to your repertoire. It's not it's, that cool when you already know it, though. Like it's a dead language, and you can become an expert really quickly. And and if you already know Spanish, you're you're halfway. Well, down. actually, Italian or Italian yeah. or Portuguese, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
Or no, you, you, you don't want to try to speak Portuguese. It's just you can't. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. Have you ever gotten into a conversation with somebody who's from Portugal, like that speaks Portuguese or Brazil? Oh, well, yeah, my yeah. buddy is from Brazil, and he speaks mm-hmm. Portuguese and and Italian and and Spanish or whatever. He's got all those three down, and it does. It sounds very funny hearing him talk. And I heard him speak one time, and I almost <laughs> thought he was making it up. It sounded so blah blah blah. It's right. You know, it's funny because the uh, the uh, uh, the director of the um, a community counseling center uh, where I chair the board is from Portugal, and so he lives on a boat, and he will sit on his boat and sing Fado, and it's so interesting because it, it's Portuguese, and you don't understand, I mean, it's so different from Spanish. It's like tuneless, tuneless longing, tuneless longing, we would say. Well, but it is Fado, it's really funny, right. and, and if you know the movie about um, the Calypso with Bill Murray... You're thinking about the girl from Ipanema? Is that where you're going? No, I'm thinking about the Fado singer in that movie. Oh, Lord. I can't remember, but some, yeah, where they again took the guitar and hit him yeah. over the head with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. PJ. Okay, that's cool. PJ has put up variations that you can vote on. Okay. PJ, what so you should do. So we're crowdsourcing our. We're crowdsourcing, patch. but what you in real time? What you, yes, good, thank you. Okay, the very first one, okay, is fab fascinating. It's how we this all started. It's two people in the same spacesuit is what he what he did, and it just it's just creeped me out because oh I would hate to share a spacesuit with Bill. I mean it would just be horrible, horrible. Words couldn't describe. How so horrible. I would be the astronaut, basically. Decomposing in space. Well, Nancy floated away. Oh, by away. the way, yeah. Or Bill. Yeah. Oh, because um, she didn't want to smell your farts. I mean, that's realistic. That's what it is. And you know what else? Another tidbit or factoid is Bill. Bill sent this to me this week. Before there, before divorce became common in England, arsenic was very, very easy to get, and women were poisoning their husbands with arsenic at an alarming rate. It peaked in say eighteen sixty five or so, but it, um, it it um, was a really big deal. Bill, uh, I think she's trying to tell you something. No. <laughs> it, Better be ready. Uh, the point was, <laughs> this is one of the reasons that divorce, legal divorce, finally came to England. Um, yeah, because the men during were dropping Victorian like England, big, Because all these husbands were being murdered. Because you could do it slowly right. or you could do it quickly. And the thing is, um, it's just, it's amazing because people who who cook for other people... Um, always worry about poisoning them, but inadvertently, you know, botulism and stuff. At least I do. <laughs> well, now, uh, the German government has it to where when you divorce, you have like a certain amount of time it is for you can't technically get divorced. The government has it for, to give you a chance to get back together or something oh, like that. Yeah, well, states have that too. I mean, well, then maybe yeah. Germany should yeah. give that to England and that would solve everybody's it was something problem. one of my friends was telling me. Yeah, then it was kind of, I don't know. Chris, maybe Chris, I'm willing, Chris, I am willing to take bets about will England really no, no, I was just saying the if, European Union. I don't think so. If Chris, what Chris just said about Germany, if Germany would put that on the table saying, look, we do this for a divorce, let's do this for Brexit, um, give you a second chance, give you a couple of weeks to think about it, it would fix everything. Every state in the union does the same thing. No, 
buyer's remorse, or, or, or what is it called when you have when, two weeks after you, you sign a contract? When you file for divorce in the United Actually, States, Angel there's a legal this. separation period during which, if you want to reconcile, this is before really? the final judgment. No. Yeah, it's called an interlocutory Eek, judgment. I didn't know that. Where well, what about when you buy an appliance or a car or something? Don't you have there, is no, there, there is no buyer's remorse in the car business. You buy no? it, you drive off with it, you're stuck. It depends on the wow. dealer, though, because some dealers say if you bring it back in, in, in a week, then we'll rescind the deal. In real estate, you get 30 days. The, you- only way, the only way a dealership will rescind any deal is that they have a lot of money in-house, and they're going to charge them for the time that they spend with the car. And in other words, you're going to lose your deposit, maybe most of it, maybe all of it, and you know we'll give you the, we'll take the car back and renege the deal. That's uh, you know that's an exception some dealerships make because at the end of the day they're still keeping and pocketing that money, so they don't care. Uh, but for the most part, once you sign off and you drive off with the car, the car is yours, man. And the it's, car it's is not new. And the car is not new anymore. I mean, if you buy a new car, it's yeah, not once, new anymore. Once, once you put you miles in it, that's it. Right, you screw yeah, the car over. Yeah. Right. But a used car is different because you do have – there are various states that do have lemon laws that basically say uh, you have a week or two weeks. Actually, no. That doesn't work for you. the used car business. It works for new cars. Uh, lemon laws don't work for the used car business because really? used cars have already been through that process. The lemon law is for a brand-new car that has the same issue more than two or three times that goes into the manufacturer two or three times. After the third time, they consider it a lemon. And that new car, by manufacturer standards, will be uh, reported as a lemon. And then they, they either have to fix it and rebuild the title or whatever it is they have to do. But for the used car business, there's no such thing as lemon law. It doesn't exist. I thought you could bring the car back. No. Well, you can in California. Well, maybe in some places make, they might make an exception. But in Florida? Right. In, in the 12 years that I've been in the business, uh, none none of the dealerships that I've ever worked at uh, would even come close to taking a car back as mm-hmm. a lemon law. They'll fix a car. They'll send it back to repairs. They'll send it to a different mechanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll split the difference with you. In fact, I had an issue with a client recently where she bought a car from us in February, and it had three issues. It had issues with the uh, starter, had an issue with the transmission, issue uh, with the starter mm-hmm. again. And it's either our fault that the car was bad and we just sold her a bad car, or it's her fault that she keeps messing the car up. One or the other. Um, there's only so many times you could mess up, you know, a starter up. You know, if it's a new starter that you just got installed and it's messed up again in a couple months, then something's going on. You know, right? Uh, might not be on our end, but so that's why they'll cover you. And there is no such thing as lemon. Like, there's no way to hurt for her to get out of it. It's been a few months. She's been making payments. She's stuck on that car. That literally just happened this week to me. So. Oh really? Yeah. We yeah. went at, at well. We're it's ten thirty. So we are going to take our break right now, and come back with our guest Richard Smith. So we are your co-hosts Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on PSN Radio on the Dark Matter Digital Network, broadcasting from Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Village, Solbury, Pennsylvania. Coming back with our guest after this, Richard Smith. So stay with us, folks, for. An intriguing 90 minutes of UFOs, the spread of religion, and wars. There should be a lemon law for UFOs and ufologists that lie. What do you mean? What do you mean? Study. 
when an engaged in serious thought. Reflections of both about reality. Solutions to issues with society. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more supermanhomepage.com have you heard mac maloney lately in your military career did you ever see anything that came close to an unusual ufo sighting or no holy <laughs> that was the uh, 10 seconds of uh, no what are you that was so convincing yeah, what are you trying to say there well ufo is an innocuous term that's the worst Denial I've ever heard. And flying Mac Maloney's Military X Files, Friday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern on the public streaming radio network.
So hi, everybody. So our guest tonight, everybody, is Richard Smith, who's going to talk about his book, Moore's Masons and ETs on Future Theater tonight. So Richard, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Future Theater. Thank you, guys. It's been it's a great honor to be on the show here, and thank you for having me. So, Richard, can you tell us, just to start off with, how you came up with the title? Because the title is intricate. Uh, the Moors, let's go here. The Moors, why the Moors, uh, why the Masons, and the aliens, why the aliens? Can you tell us? Why the title? Yeah. Okay. And uh, the... The more the Mason and the Alien happens to it's titled that way because it represents the three main elements, the three primary elements, okay, that are affecting um, the outcome uh, of the human race on this planet. And the more um, I put that first, actually, because psychologically I wanted people to see that first and start asking more questions about it. But the more is a reference to the ancient and modern-day Moorish legacy that actually represents what I refer to as the the spiritual insurrection, the spiritual development of the human being with the Temple of Solomon and the bloodline of the Christs and all that stuff. Um, and uh, on the flip side of that, you have the polar opposite agenda, which is the Mason, which is a reference to the white Freemasonry and the Masonic agenda, which has more of an interest in the real estate that the economic slave lives on. In other words, planet Earth and every other planet in the solar system. Uh, um, so that part is much more materialistic, um, you know, uh, very oppressive, uh, economically speaking. Uh, and then the third part, the alien, is a reference to that silent third party. Uh, of an extraterrestrial nature that, you know, just a, um, in a short answer, basically playing both sides against the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, because I point out in the book that you have two things that people often misconstrue with each other on alien contact uh, that are so far apart from each other. Uh, one in, On one side of it, you have extraterrestrial intervention. Now, that belongs to the Moorish legacy. Okay, because that's the side that gave us the uh, genetic advancement, the gene for passion, as I explained it in the book, that actually gave us our sense of self-awareness so that we have a means of fighting back against the system. Without that, we'd just still be walking around digging in caves and, you know, working for our slave masters willingly and not knowing any better. And where did, uh, you, say, where did you say again that that came from, that instinct? The the gene for passion? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that came from um, the concept of extraterrestrial intervention. In other words, the benevolent factions mm -hmm. who have more of a vested interest in human development, spiritual development, our ecological relationship with Mother Earth, um, and how the two affect each other in a symbiotic relationship. Well, really, would the, would the con becoming conscious of our own mortality, would that be hooked onto that gene as well? Becoming conscious of our own mortality. Well, yeah, that sense of um, – because that gets into another aspect too that I tell people all the time that reincarnation is for the good guys and immortality is for the bad guys. Mm. All right? And on the flip side of it, polar opposite to extraterrestrial intervention is the alien abduction phenomena, which is strictly all about 
the corporate agenda, corporatism, um, global and galactic real estate investing, the white Masonic agenda, the two-party system, all of that stuff that is basically – Which is why Corso, I believe, was allowed to say what he said because I think yeah. he was part of that agenda. It just feels – that feels like the right answer to the yeah. puzzle. I, I could see that, yes, yes. And um, so that's that's the title of the book and basically the crux of the book. Now, the book itself uh, kind of evolved out of the idea of many people over the years listening to my seminars and lectures and asking me, like, how did you, you know, get to this point in your life of figuring all of this out? And um, – because there's really there's not a whole lot of other people out there putting those pieces together and presenting it this way. Um, and I said, you know, I, I decided, okay, the first half of the book would be devoted to what happened over the last 20 years, okay? Uh, and I start out from childhood and bring it right up to, like, oh, the year 2005. And you're which, talking about exper- becoming an experiencer. Right, and also how those experiences uh, ended up having me cross paths with certain mentors and teachers who themselves chose to remain nameless, but when they heard me talking, they're like, that's the guy who's going to get it, that's the guy who knows how to use it. And um, and I bring it up to 2005 in the first half because then that is a direct link to what launches off the second half of the book in 2005, which was that um, that uh, infamous lecture I gave in New Egypt, New Jersey, where and this all is this the this off. is the t- Temple University, the Temple University one. That no, came, this is in New Egypt. Where in where in New Egypt did well, you? Well, you know, this? with uh, what's his face, Mister 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 UFO, Mister UFO. Oh, UFO yes. oh, was that in New? <laughs> I thought that was in Bordentown. It's the same. Um, well, they call it Bordentown, but technically it's New Egypt. And I point that out in the book. I, you know, I point out like of all the places to begin this. Guess what? It starts in New Egypt, New Jersey. Okay. What happened? Um, what happened? Are you, are and you, when? Wait, I have to ask you. Where are you? Are you living on the East Coast now? Uh, for most of my life, I did. But since two thousand, since the second half of two thousand eight, I've been living in the Southwest in Albuquerque. Ah. All right. So. It's been, you know, I can't believe I, I used to live advice. in. I, no, see, I, I used to live in Allentown, New Jersey, and I was on the rescue squad. And New okay. Egypt was in our territory, so I know New Egypt very well. Uh, okay, especially yeah. This way, it was right there where you come off the interstate, I think, and you see like the Best Western, or you know that that hotel or area right there, where they it. would hold these conferences. So, um. That's where that all kicked off because uh, um, now at that point, you know, in I think it was October 2005 or November 2005. Yeah, November. Um, you know, he so, with the the Mr. UFO was like, well, what do you want to call this thing? You know, uh, so he throws some stuff in there about reptilians or whatever just to get people interested. Um, in a flash of inspiration, right at that point, like five minutes before I'm about to hit the mic, all of a sudden it came to me, history, health, and wealth. And that became the driving backbone of the whole thing. 
the subject matter of history, health, and wealth, the three kingpins right there. Mm-hmm. So, and you see that in the book too. Well, okay, so what exactly happened in New Egypt? Who did you run into who started you on the path? Is that where you met Peter Moon perhaps? Uh, Peter Moon has been in the picture since like the mid-90s, um, 1994 to be exact. I, I talk about that in the book too where uh, there was a – 1994, um, I had actually gone to one of his uh, initial lectures, which he was just starting out at the time with the Montauk Project too. And uh, after going to one of his lectures, something had – unlocked in the back of my brain and that night I went home and I I couldn't go to sleep for the rest of the night Uh, I was just lit and my poor parents they they didn't even have a chance to go to bed till like four o'clock in the morning because I just couldn't go to sleep and stop talking because all of this information was released at that point and I just kind of like you know spewed it all over them all night long after going to that meeting, there was just something about the information that was shared that night that ended up unlocking a whole lot of things that had been intentionally hidden away in the back of my mind. Who, who shared Who shared the information? Um, it was – okay, yeah. Uh, now, this goes back to the first half of the book. Uh, I put a lot of effort into explaining um, how all of this uh, kicked off with my first awakening at the age of 21. And at the age of 21, in that first awakening, there was a, a being or an entity who I refer to as the crone in the book who basically made herself known to me. Uh, and that wasn't the first time really, but that was the first realization of her, the first awareness. Was this in a dream or in real life? It was uh, It was in real life, okay? And... Um, I looked at her and I said, you know, I know you, but how do I know you? I was in total shock. And this is when there was a whole lot of information unlocked and shared at that point about my family history, my mother, my grandmother, how they were tied into it generationally. And this is uh, how I realized the entity referred to as the crone had really always been there since like uh, I was like four years old. But I explained in the book why these type of entities don't make themselves known to you until you come of age. Mm-hmm. And in that beginning of what I refer to as the conversation, which has lasted all these years, uh, I was made aware of a group um, of multiple different species, most of them female, uh, who are referred to as the sisterhood. And they work as kind of like a um, a liaison or a go-between between the benevolent factions of the galactic community and the human race here on Earth or any other planet for that matter. Um, they focus a lot on the development of gifted children. So you see them involved a lot with uh, children that are referred to as um, indigos in America or the super psychic kids of China. Okay. Well, are these people, uh, do they take human form, the sisterhood? Well, the, the, you might think that some of them look sort of humanoid. Okay, They have a humanoid quality about them, but human, well, there's a few of them in there, definitely. Okay, 
but you're talking about a lot of different um, alien species who get involved with this. The crone I describe in the book in detail is very much like um, what some might refer to as a, uh, a female praying mantis, extremely tall. Okay, uh, She towers over me. And um, I, I describe in the book how she has this uh, quality about her, okay, mystical, supernatural, whatever you want to call it, where she is draped in a uh, dark brown robe. And you'd swear the robe itself was organic or alive with the way it floats across the floor as if she's never even touching the floor. But And so for the most part, you see her hands and her face or her head, which is quite large with um, eyes that I refer to as um, obsidian rainbow eyes. They're kind of like those black eyes, but just calling them black is mm -hmm. kind of shortchanging it because it's more so black with the colors of the rainbow, kind of like that dark obsidian rock with the iridescence of rainbow colors. Mm -hmm. um, so she has that. And then uh, there have been those occasions where I've actually seen the rest of her body, few and far between, it does exist. Well, but, well uh, how, does she, how does she come to you? Is she part of an abduction scenario or are you walking down the street and time stops? She got the Pamela Anderson look or what's happening? The Pamela, she, yeah, that would be nice, huh? Is she hot? <laughs> I, I don't know if you could refer to an ancient relic of the universe as hot, but, you know. Um, you don't know what I'm into, and, man. You just don't know. Yeah, okay. All right. Not, not ask. But um, I don't I don't question anything anymore. But uh, <laughs> I just tend to roll with it. All right. Um, yeah, there's there's other members of the sisterhood you might consider hot by human standards. But um, very nice. For the, for, yeah. Well, yeah. But it, but it, but it is um, it is specifically a feminine uh, aura or a feminine power or a feminine yeah. energy, correct? Yes, and you will see in a small minority some other members who I think might be considered male, although when it comes to alien species, that androgyny issue is kind of up in the air, so it's hard to tell. But, uh, but, a, feminine yeah, energy, part, but a feminine energy could be completely in a guy. Doesn't, and it could be, on, you know, some guys some days might have a feminine day where they feel like they're going to clean this place up. And they run around and they do stuff. Yeah, you they're know? called gay men, Nancy. Gay men. <laughs> no heterosexual man ever wakes up and says, you know what? I feel like a woman today. You know, but do you ever feel like straightening things so up? So feminine. No. no. But Angel, don't you ever no. feel like, oh, this place is a mess. I'm going to clean no, it up. No, I feel like smoking a cigar and going outside and having a T-bone steak, even though I'm a vegetarian. Oh, I feel the same, the same exact way. I could have a T-bone steak right yeah. now. No, there I couldn't. There you go. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I couldn't keep a straight face when you. I guys just had pork chops. First half hour of the show. <laughs> oh God, were you were you listening? You were. Listening? I was listening. Oh. I was on the floor laughing. Okay, so <laughs> that's what I do. That's what I do. Well, but, you know, no, I, for the most part, yeah. I would say, um, in terms of gender, uh, by far mostly female. Okay, okay. and um, and there's a power in that because it's very much about the female principle of the feminine goddess energy. Well, do, you, do, you, do you think we're yeah. in fact going through a push of that energy in this world these days? Yes and I'm glad you brought that up. I do. Because that's, that's where we originally come from. Okay. Uh -huh. And because of the last 
patriarchal invasion of this planet. I emphasize the word patriarchal because it's more so associated with corporatism and materialism. That last invasion of the planet basically uh, wiped the floor up with Mother Earth and any sort of female, feminine-oriented type energy with the sun and with the damage that came to the planet uh, because of certain cosmological events. All of a sudden, women were forced to move away from sun worship and then they were forced to uh, stick their menstrual cycles on this artificial tin can floating out there called the moon, which goes a long way to explaining why their menstrual cycles are so painful because they're associating it with an artificial man-made device. But 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 wait, but wait, I've always been taught that in fact the lunar cycle is completely connected to the human blood flow and everything. It's completely we're, we're born that way. Gravitational gravitational pull, yes. Okay? There's nothing mystical about it. It's pure gravitational pull that over eons we have been conditioned to now consider that part of our life. So if you try to just suck the moon away and shove it back out wherever it belonged in the first place, it would be devastating to the planet. Yes, you would have mood swings, you would have psychotic behavior, um, you know, all manner of medical and psychological issues would erupt that people would have to adjust to. But of course, it would be such a shock to the system. But there's nothing natural about that. Conditioning the slave race does not equate to something that's natural. Well, uh, take us back to when you first were ever contacted. How did you go from being a uh, regular – and you are a superb artist. Um, I put I, – I Yeah, I, I, um, I am so grateful to be able to have such a good-looking picture on our website right now. Um, that has to be the cover of something. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, when did you first? When did you first have an intersection with reality shifting? Let's say. Mm. Um, well, it it would have been at the the age of twenty one, but. And why do you say that? Of, and 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 I, I admit that's kind of a for me personally. It all these years later, I'm forty five now. Uh, I only use that as a point of departure or a point of origin because in truth, in that first you know, awakening there and real awareness, okay, not just something happening in the background in the gray shadows, but, but uh, that first sense of real awareness where a lot of things were made known to me, all of a sudden when, those mem- when that whole cluster bomb of buried memories mm-hmm. starts coming back to you in a state of total recall. Um, and you start realizing those things that were dreams from a childhood were not dreams anymore. They were actually real events. Um, then you start going back to like the age of four years old and thinking, well, okay, it didn't really start at the age of 21. It really started at the age of four years old. Mm-hmm. But you don't remember any of that until you get that little tap on the shoulder that, you know, wakes up both sides of the brain and says, you know, this is what's been going on with you. Well, did you ask for the, for this consciously as uh, a 21-year-old? <laughs> no, no. But as it turns out, uh, um, along the way, you learn to realize how reincarnation plays a tremendous role in these kind of things. And this isn't the first lifetime 
that I've been involved with this. And I talk well, about that in the book too. Well, how does your memory, how do your memories of your previous lives affect you in the present, in this life? Um, I'm, uh, I, I can remember glimpses, things that put together like whole snippets of pictures. And then you start realizing how to piece it together and sort of fill in the gaps there. Um, like by one example, I, um, <laughs> I talk about in the book how the crone had been there because uh, your, your soul or what you might refer to as a soul gives off a certain frequency, lifetime after lifetime. And those who have a, oh, how should I say, a more sophisticated form of technology that might be misinterpreted as magic or sorcery mm-hmm. um, are capable of tuning into that frequency and finding you like a tagged salmon lifetime after lifetime. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, this is um, this is how the bad guys do it. And then again, well, this is, is also how the good is, guys do it. Is, is there something you can control about that or can you put shields up or change your frequency consciously? Um, if you uh, invite certain things into your life, okay, you can also reject them as well uh, because it is, it is all about tuning the dial on the radio bandwidth. Do I want AM or FM? Do I want UHF? Do I want aliens or ghosts? Do I want Dracula? Or do might, I want- wait, just on a practical level, might it be a good idea yeah. if, you're, if you're a starting out person, maybe a do-it-yourselfer, might it be yeah. a good idea to ask for relatives, mom and dad or whoever has, has already died? Yes, definitely. That is the thing that I talk about in the book is my mother and my grandmother – Okay, my grandmother died in the mid '80s when I was about 13, 14, uh, somewhere. I think six. Uh, yeah, somewhere around when I was 16. And my mother died um, about uh, 10 years ago, December of 2005. Okay, when they they had each not only made a promise to each other, but they also made a promise to my brother and I. That when they got over to the other side, they would do everything in their power to try and maybe succeed where Houdini failed. And they did succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandmother started having long-term dream state conversations with my mother. There were times where she heard what she said, other times where she couldn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. It was just there was a conversation but no sound. And that's Mm -hmm. the most frustrating of all. Um, and, uh, my, my grandmother was very, very strong with numbers in threes, multiples of threes and sevens. So right after she passed away, we started seeing those signs all around us. Like she was dropping these little hints. Okay. Um, and when my mother passed away, uh, shortly after that in the following year, she didn't waste any time. She started communicating with one of my nieces, Sophie, right in the living room, um, like she was sitting there on the couch watching TV with Sophie. And then um, a couple years later uh, – but, but what happened? Did, did she sort of indent the couch or something? No. No. Um, it was – it was uh, my Sophie was sitting on the couch and she's watching the TV. She looks across at the desk chair 
And then she turns to my father and says, hey, uh, you know, Grandpa, um, Grandma's sitting here watching it with us. And my father, who has had his own experiences with my mom contacting him, he said, oh, where, where is she? And Sophie points at the desk chair. She says, she's sitting right there and putting her legs up. Uh, I don't think there was any movement in the chair, but she was adamant, you know, and described her to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is someone who, you know, was uh, very, very young, okay, at the time that, uh, you know, grandma passed away. Um, and so, and I swear that in the year 2007, February 2007, my third niece, Emmy, was born. And I remember holding her in my arms, and all of a sudden, there was a certain smell in the air around Emmy, on Emmy. And I was like, where the hell is that coming from? Because I recognized it, you know. Um, you know, my, my, my eyes might be shot to hell, but my nose is still pretty damn good. And, uh, the, and I started thinking about it. I was like, where have I smelled that before? I realized it was my mother. And I have a strong feeling that Emmy is the reincarnation of my mother. Mm. Well, were there any other traits that your mother exhibited that your niece exhibited too? Um, <laughs> very strong-willed. Okay, she was the youngest runt, and she basically took over. I was like, "Yeah, that's mom." All right, <laughs> she has the same personality um, as my mother. Okay, and well, my other niece, you go ahead. Where I'm hoping to lead you is to talk a little more about in the acknowledgments of um, your new book. And, and when did you finish your book? Has it been? Mm. Uh, it's a good story there, yeah. Um, I, uh, I often tell people the only reason I got the book done is because I got divorced. Um, I had been married for about eight years. And that marriage actually started with me, of all places, talk about synchronicity, at the 2005 uh, lecture I gave in New Jersey, same one, mm-hmm. met that person there. Uh, a year later, we decided to stick together and get married. Um, I loved her dearly, still do, but in the last couple of years of the marriage, somewhere around uh, 2012, 2013, um, everything just went to shit and uh, you know it was like I was the only person bailing the water out of a sinking ship and trying to put out fires left and right to hold the marriage together just wasn't working finally I did a dream casting message that a remote viewer had taught me how to do and I got the message back that uh, I should let it go it's done it's run its course and it's getting in the way of everything else Um, so on October 2013 I come home one night from work uh, in a panic because I wasn't able to get through to her all day and lights are off, her stuff is gone and I got a Dear John letter waiting for me on the kitchen counter telling me how the whole damn thing was my fault. And that's how I found out I was getting a divorce. Well, after coming out of the uh, uh, emotional devastation of having that blow up in my face like that, um, by the time January of 2014 came along, uh, I sat down in front of the laptop and realized, hey, wait a minute. You know, it had already been about three months. I understand why this is happening now. And I was actually, you know, digging through the closet one day and I found old 
half-started pieces of manuscript of things that I tr- tried to get going over the past, over the last eight years of the marriage and never could because things kept getting in the way. And it was meant to be the book that you guys have now that was published. And I looked at them. I pulled them out, read through them, and I was like, you know what? This is all crap. It's all going in the garbage. And I figured out exactly at that point how to start the book. And that was January 2014, and I didn't stop on it um, until July of 2015. Um, And then I felt I had reached a good point to stop it at the end there. And then it was published September 1st last year. And that's the odyssey behind that. And I point that out to people so that they know when they read the first page of the first chapter, that's where my mindset was coming from. I was Mm -hmm. coming out of the divorce. And at that point, I got a message from the crone that said, you better get your ass going. We've waited long enough. Mm. And so I have a strong feeling that the crone had something to do with the divorce as well. Mm. Did you ever tell your wife about the crone? Oh, all the time. Yeah, she knew everything from scratch. She was there from the, you know, in 2005 at that first lecture I gave. And that's what, you know, initially electrified her. She wanted to know more about me. I really liked her. Um, And she, you know, her name is Diane. And uh, it's just things changed along the way. She became somebody, you know, six years into the marriage that I didn't quite recognize anymore. And I kept trying to figure out what the hell am I doing wrong. And uh, it took some, uh, it took a really good, therapists with a good sense of humor uh, to straighten me out and realize that I had done everything I possibly could Um, and that it was just, you know, like I said, a sinking ship. But it was a good thing it happened because everything happens for a reason. And yeah, sure, it took me a couple months to pull, pull myself out of the emotional coma I was in. But after that, I was lit on fire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and of course, the idea was, how am I going to write this in a way that everybody can relate to? Well, I grew up with some powerful um, uh, comical inspirations, you know, people like uh, Eddie Griffith or uh, George Carlin or Robin Williams or Richard Pryor. And they why, were people. Why comical? Um, it's the bit, well. Life is all about comedy and tragedy. That's why they call it humor. People think the word humor mm-hmm. uh, relates to everything that's funny. Those are all my no, favorite. Those are all my favorite growing up too. All those. Yeah. Guys. Great. Well, but you, got, but you guys, is, should, you guys should really check out Bill Hicks. Hold on, he's trying yes, to make a Bill really Hicks, good point here. Bill, Bill Hicks is another one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hear him on Pandora all the time. Jim Jeffries. Um, Jim Jeffries is another one. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I catch all these guys on Pandora. Or on Comedy uh, Comedy Central, or, but um, and um, let's see, um, humor, humors. Yeah. So why why humor? Humor, Well, humor is more about your outlook on life. That's the original definition of humor. Along the way, the word comedy, which was more about the good guy defeating the bad guy got skewed to the idea of, well, this makes people happy, and then along the way it got skewed even further to just be comedy itself as we think of it today. Ha-ha, make you laugh and move on. But tragedy and comedy 
coming out of real comedians who know how to handle it the right way mm-hmm. is all about how you handle the everyday trials and tribulations of life. Your sense of humor, the color of life, your lens scope, okay, that you look through. Do you have a skewed lens or do you have a broad scope, okay? And people like Eddie Griffith and Robin Williams and George Collin were the first comedians to ever come along and tackle the subject of alien contact in their routines in an intelligent, down-to-earth, socially-oriented manner. It still made you laugh, but it was serious because you knew what they were saying was true. It wasn't this, you know, crap about little green men from Mars, okay? What, uh, when did they ever bring up aliens? Yeah, yeah what either, did George Carlin say about yeah. extraterrestrials? They all did. you got to watch their comedy acts. You'll see it all laced throughout there. And uh, you'll even catch it on Pandora once in a while, too. George Carlin was the one who talked about, uh, you know, um, the only reason the aliens come to Earth is because they want to, you know, uh, visit the circus. And if you come to America, you get front row seats. Mm. So uh, Eddie Griffith was the first to talk about the race issue. Okay, he says, if you can't even get over issues of black and white, what the hell are you going to do when something with purple skin and yellow polka dots comes down here? Mm. You know, um, Uh, Robin Williams had his own spin on it as well. But um, so, yeah, I started listening to the way they were approaching it, and that served as the foundation for how to do the book. Well, tell us about the Moorish influence. Yeah, well, that's, let's fill, I'm let's really fill curious that about that because yeah, the, Moor. the Moors Sure, definitely. This is a powerful aspect that um, everyone has missed out on. Because to this day, um, you know, I even – there was a time where I went to – many years ago in the 90s, I went to a a Bud Hopkins seminar in New York City. And um, as much as I loved him, he kind of mimicked a lot of what other ufologists were saying that kind of annoyed the hell out of me. Which was? Because I knew that – was that, oh – of everything we've looked at, <laughs> we really don't have any answers on, on how to explain the alien abduction phenomena. And I would practically leap out of my skin every time I heard a ufologist say that. Because my point is, if you would look beyond the end of your nose and maybe talk to people who are seven shades darker, you would get the answer. Okay? <laughs> and that's something that none of us do. Well... I had gotten to a certain point where uh, my mentors had um, realized I had reached a certain point or a certain impasse where I was getting frustrated with the whole thing because I knew there was a missing piece that everybody was missing out on. Okay, And that missing piece eventually came from a couple of my mentors who started teaching me about the Moorish legacy and then everything filled in the rest of the way with the alien abduction phenomena. And then all of it made sense. So tell us what, uh, tell, tell us what that is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, it starts out where at a time during that last patriarchal invasion of the planet when the greys moved in for the kill, basically took over the whole operation, kicked out all the competition from the solar system and placed a uh, corporate quarantine over the whole solar system. Um, that spelled a whole lot of doom for the 
outcome of the human race at that point, or primate ancestors, who were basically now placed in a position of just endless indentured servitude and mindless slavery. Um, at that point, the uh, what I refer to in the book, I mean, the sisterhood and the Adam and the Ankeels, okay, um, which are a, uh, a very special type of extraterrestrial race, they uh, teamed up and decided we need to give them a leg up so that they can fight back themselves. That's what I refer to in the book as the spiritual insurrection. And it's the Ankeels who had the special genetic code that I refer to as the gene for passion that had been basically uh, used to modify this first group of anointed, self-aware primates that are referred to in the book as the Adam. Okay? And this is how the rebellion begins against the Anunnaki um, because the Adam were not only taught every form of forbidden knowledge they weren't supposed to know about as slaves, but they were also taught the methods of stealth warfare, guerrilla warfare more so. Okay? And um, well, doesn't this that, sound doesn't this sound like the serpent talking to Eve at this point, giving well, the knowledge? Here's the thing: the serpent was the good guy. Okay, that's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. so. Right, and the serpent is a powerful symbol because it's more <clears> so uh, a snake. It's a rep. Uh, it's a reptile that used to have four legs. Its legs were taken away so that it didn't have the ability to travel as fast and spread forbidden knowledge. To this day, it is the symbol of medicine, what heals the human body and therefore the temple. Okay, So that whole symbolism was turned upside down via corporate propaganda of the greys all right, uh, to make the good guys look like the bad guys. Well, in that passing on or bestowing of the gene for passion into the atom, um, I point out in the book that in a very um, spiritual and symbolic way, the gene for passion were passed through this brand new movement known as the Temple of Solomon. And when it came out the other side, it became known as the Passion of the Christ or the Kundalini or Orgone Energy. Okay, And so this is how the bloodline of the Christs begin. It came from the Adam. Now, I point out to people that, uh, you know, the Adam has always been with us, okay? It never went away, okay? It's always been here. It stayed behind as the guardians to help the consumer slave or the primate beast evolve out of the muck and mire of slavery because not everyone was an anointed Adam. So they become the watchers, the ones who um, hid in the mountains, okay, and watched over the human race, seeing how, watching how things were going. Very much like the symbolism of the Tycho monolith in the movie 2001, okay, a beacon. And, um, but we don't call them the Adam anymore. Uh, nowadays, we use other names. We call them the Sasquatch. We call them the Yahweh. We call them the Yeti. We call them the Orangutan or the Berserker. Okay, all these other different clan names for them that have passed down through the ages, and this is where the Adam comes from. And um, as the 
gene for passion became the passion of the Christ. It became the foundation of the Temple of Solomon. And the word temple, wherever you see that, is always a reference to the evolution of the human body, the human spirit, the human being, the human condition. Okay, It's always about the betterment of the human being. And this was where the uh, all of a sudden you start having the creation of the master architects as a kind of like a leading uh, coming along and building on another wing onto the temple of solomon and those master architects became known as the christs okay people like jesus and muhammad and buddha and noble drew ali and abraham and etc and so forth but they're not um, the, that's not the masons right no 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 um, I also explain how the word Mason came into existence, too. So here we have this movement going along, and um, it's really irritating the living hell out of the greys, who by this time are known as the um, – they became known as the Shetu regime. And it's from the word Shetu or Shedu that you get the mispronunciation shadow. And since they became the reigning Schutzstaffel among the slaves at the time, um, the Chateau regime was the Chateau government, henceforth the mispronunciation shadow government. And this is how that phrase comes into existence. Um, they were the uh, bad high priesthood, okay? Because the thing that served as the foundation for this whole movement was. Um, the Egyptian university system, the Commission Mysteries, the good guys. And that university system spread, you know, the Temple of Solomon. Now, this became known as, this spiritual insurrection, this movement across the planet, became known as the Moorish Legacy, Moors. It's practically laced through every word in our vocabulary, from the planet Mars to the word mariner, okay? Okay, because they were master mariners. This is how they spread it around the planet. Um, it's in the word, moriner. Okay? It's even in the name Maria of the sea, moriner. And these are the people who became the extension of the Egyptian university system. Well, um, the – What <laughs> year – what – just <clears> – <throat> What year roughly are we talking about? I mean, where are we in human history at this point? Uh, no specific year. I never. I learned a long time ago that it's a waste of time to put anything on a, 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 a dating pattern there because of all of our calendars being so botched up. Chronologically, that's important, cause and effect, action and reaction. But if you look in the place of Date on something, you're going to walk into a brick wall every time because that just doesn't work. Well, we know a couple of things. I mean, like we know that the Moors were North Africans. I mean, like the original Moors were. Uh, this was after was Islam. Was the Moors one of the lost tribes? No. no. It, after Islam spread um, across North Africa, it was mm -hmm. the North Africans who invaded Spain, and they became the Sp and, and they were the Moors. And so we have one fixed date. We know that the Saracens tried to cross the Pyrenees into France in 742 CE, and mm -hmm. they were stopped by Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours. And so we know, at least at that point, 
but for Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, Martel is hammer in French, uh, but for Charles Martel, Europe would have been Muslim because it, it, it was an Islamic invasion of Europe through, uh, through Spain, through the Pyrenees into France. And, of course, and uh, it was first uh, Charles Martel, then it was uh, 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 Charles the Great, Carolus Magnus, mm-hmm. Charlemagne. Who, who who stopped the Saracens, and that's the song of Roland, by the way, not Keith. Yeah, Roland, those 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 events would have come much later on. That's okay? what I'm asking. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm. If you're looking for a place to stick it, stick it much further back. Okay, okay. Um, because and you know the whole idea of quote unquote invading Europe. Basically, the Moors were teaching them how to flush a toilet the right way. Because uh, this is how bad it had gotten for Europe. Okay, um, they brought a whole lot of Mesopotamian technology to Europe, and the only reason that Europe ever fell into the Dark Ages, uh, with pestilence and disease and ignorance galore, and allowing the Church to brainwash them into every godforsaken, half-assed belief that ever existed. Well, they were killing all because, the they were killing all the women, all the healing witches. They um, there were decrees. See that the Catholics, which eventually becomes Catholic, were the ones who followed in the footsteps of uh, the master infiltrators, the Archons, who took their orders from the Greys. And so they go and infiltrate the Roman Empire and work their way up the ladder, creating um, a new dominant high priesthood that the Greys could move into. And that became the Vatican. Well, they didn't like the competition with the Egyptian university system because people were realizing, eh, screw the Vatican. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, so they used the uh, doctrines of Emperor Justinian and Theodosius to shut down, forcibly make it forbidden for anyone to go to Egypt and learn anything real. Uh, Copernicus was the first example of that. He took his own students down to Egypt, down to North Africa, and learned a whole boatload of stuff so that he was armed to the teeth with real science, real astronomy. This is where he gets his information from. He comes back to Europe. They kill him for it because he committed the cardinal rule of going to Egypt and learning the truth. Um, Galileo sees that. Follows in the footsteps of Copernicus, but is a lot more clever about it, decides to operate right in the backyard of the enemy, and adopts a term from that he picked up from Copernicus called the Illuminati. And it was taken right out of the, um, the African or the Egyptian method of <clears throat> um, uh, initiation, uh, purification, and illumination. Okay, the three steps to learning the mysteries of life or the sciences of life. And that's where they ended up getting the term from. Later on, the church gets their hands on that term and turns it into the abortion that it is today, uh, with the Illuminati being turned into the bad guys, which they are. But unfortunately, that's not where the term came from. That's not how it started out. It was an Egyptian term that was adopted by Copernicus and Galileo, because of where they were getting their information from. Um, from the illuminated, went, the illuminated ones. Right, the illuminated right. minds, which were, right. by bringing this whole conversation full circle, 
was the original, original, capital O, high priesthood known as the Amon, A-M-M-O-N. Okay, I designate that spelling in the book so that I can compare it to the bad guys later on. And the original Amon were basically handed off the science of electricity by the atom. They passed it on to them and said, hey, keep this under wraps, okay, because what was brewing on the horizon was the friction with the, the manifested, uh, fabricated friction with Greece and Persia. And unfortunately, in that kind of warlike, barbaric mentality, which the historians love to overlook because they constantly paint this happy picture of the Greeks, and that's just not true. Greeks were idiots. They were barbaric. They didn't know their ass from a hole in the ground. And everything they learned came from Egypt because yeah, that's they where also, they sent they, the but they had, But they had centuries of the Eleusinian mysteries. Which they got from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is no such thing as a Greek philosopher. That myth needs to be destroyed and erased from the history books. And what happened to Socrates is the same thing that happened to Copernicus and Galileo. Socrates was the only uh, – he um, – you never hear about the philosophers before Socrates, and there's a reason for that. They try to erase them from history. You can still read about them and find them, but you've got to put some extra work into it. And the reason you're never really allowed to know about anybody that came before Socrates is because those early quote-unquote Greek philosophers came from Egypt. And, and I point out in the book that every time a student of a certain school of thought with a Greek teacher would walk up to his teacher and say, I want to know this or that, that Greek teacher would turn around and might say, you have to go to Egypt first. I can't teach you anything until you go there. Hmm. And Socrates was the pinnacle of that, which is why he ended up dead, because of the racist, venomous, paranoid attitude that was infused into Greece against Egypt. Why? Because the Amman knew there was no way they could take on the Greeks in general as students of the mysteries of life because <laughs> barbaric and paranoid. They were splintered. They weren't unified. They did not have the right mindset. And as such, they kept them out of the temples because they had no business being there. They just didn't comprehend it. The shortcomings of Aristotle are a prime example of that, also something that's never taught, you know, because right. Socrates had um, – his teachers told him the same thing, and his teachers had connections to the master teachers of the Egyptian temples. So they wrote letters or correspondence, and to their connections they still had in Egypt, you know, undercover. God forbid that should ever get exposed. But um, And they wrote back and said, yes, please send us Socrates. So he went and spent many years in Egypt and went all the way through the whole ritual, even to the point of circumcising himself, which, you know, I don't know how you oh. do that. Yeah, oh. because the whole point is to <laughs> – well, I don't have to explain it to the men, but the point is no. it gets rid of the sensitivity so you oh. can focus on the mind, okay? Um, I know. <laughs> you, I, you, I yeah, went, you, you bash it with a rock. Oh, well, there's that too. No. Well, that would be the woman's way. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, my God. Yes. So much pain just hearing this. No, I'm, I'm on the floor here. Oh. Uh, but uh, no, that's so the point I make a point in the book of saying he left Greece as an outcast. 
went to Egypt. He became a fully-fledged Egyptian, went back to Greece as more Egyptian than he was Grecian, and they killed him for it because they found out what he was talking about, what he was trying to teach, and the Greek Senate, which had already been plagued with these little you know, birdies whispering in their ear from the shadow government, had already been used as a puppet state to destroy Egypt. And the truth of the matter is, Egypt never had any animosity towards Greece. They just knew they weren't qualified to learn because they hadn't evolved far enough. So the Greeks... Um, you know, labeled the Amman, the silent ones, the secret ones, the hidden ones, okay, which is what that kind of goes into, the frequency um, of the hidden ones. And um, they they allowed themselves to be brainwashed by the greys to go after Egypt. And of course, this is when this uh, ridiculous blonde-haired abortion known as Alexander the Great comes along. And he's used with Aristotle, as this tag team operation to go in and basically um, destroy the Library of Alexandria. And Alexander, Aristotle was his teacher and friends with his father. That's the only reason why he brought Aristotle along. And he made a deal with Aristotle. He said, I will give you this much time to go into the library. He says, I will turn a blind eye. You can take whatever you want. And so um, when, it, when you look at the writings and treatises of Aristotle, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like someone who was panic-stricken and only had a limited amount of time to steal away things that didn't belong to him. And then he brings it back to Greece, hands it off to his students and says, here, I want you to rewrite all of this and make it look like it came from me. Now, the joke of it all is that Aristotle was a scientist. He was not a philosopher. So attributing anything he wrote to the field of philosophy is a joke unto itself because he was never that person. And this is how history is now skewed in favor of using Greece as a false comic book origin story for the evolution, the false evolution of Europe. But of course, Alexander the Great wasn't Greek. No, he wasn't. He was used that way. He wasn't that great either, from what I hear. He wasn't that great either. Uh, most of my people, most of the people I learned these things from, refer to him as just Alexander the Greek, and leave it at that. Yep. Um, well, Richard, can you can you tell yeah, us um, in your introduction? I'm not <clears throat> I'm not bringing up a, you know a spoiler. You say here that you end up feeling as though you are the son of the mother, going head to head with a corporate corruption of the so-called Almighty Father. Um, that's a pretty heavy statement. This caps. And yeah. uh, and then talking about corporate corruption. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what does that all mean? Okay. Um, this uh, gets into some heavy stuff, but I've talked about it before on other radio shows, and I only bring it up because you ask, okay? Um Everything I've talked about to this point, I was kind of skirting the edge of that because I didn't want to dive into it until someone brought it up. But um, the we have gone through many different regimes on this planet, all for the purpose of owning the real estate, owning the tradable commodities, and controlling the throne of power, which is 
in the case of our solar kingdom, Mother Earth. Whoever controls the throne has carte blanche to control all the other real estate, a.k.a. the other planets. Okay? And so this goes a long way to explaining why there is such a extreme battle of wits over this planet. Why we have all these alien visitors, all these visitation experiences, people coming back with different stories that don't correlate with each other all the time. Um, it's because you're dealing with different interests, different factions. Okay? And um, the I point out in the book that um, before the Chateau regime came along, the Greys, who take their marching orders directly from the Orion Empire, um, there was a, um, a different regime in place that was operating with the Greys, and that regime was known as the, you know, the Canis Feudal Lords, basically bipedal canines, or what eventually became known in mythology as werewolves, okay? Um, and based on their warlike tendencies, they were just as bloodthirsty as any werewolf because their definition of battle was to eat the enemy right on the battlefield. They never took any prisoners. Um, and these guys had the personality of what you see as the Ferengi on Star Trek. They would sell their mother into slavery and stab each other in the back in three seconds flat if it meant making a profit. And the, um, the Jews. Well, <laughs> it sounds like everybody in my high school. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I could think of a few people from high school today, too. But um, these Canis feudal lords, okay, they knew how to turn a profit. They knew how to turn, strip mine and hydrofrack a whole damn solar system to the point where they left it dead and barren, okay? When they initially found our backwater system, the dollar signs just flew through the air, okay? Because they couldn't believe all the rich, valuable <clears throat> but, resources. But, but wait, but wait, but you're saying, therefore, that they have some form of money. There is. Uh, they deal with tradable commodities. Uh, you're, you're not going to see fiat currency with them. They deal with real hardcore stuff, okay? Gold, silver, diamonds, you know, the real McCoy, all right? Um, and... Of course, the kingpin, who had been favored to wipe out the rest of the competition at the time, he was known at the time as King Anu. And he had a very, very sadistic son who was operating on the same frequency of, like, you know, uh, Nero or Jeffrey Dahmer, okay? And um, that sick twist, which was his eldest son, um, and you've heard this elsewhere, but maybe not exactly the right way from the perspective of real estate and economics. But that demented freak was known as Prince Enlil. Okay? And the only reason he got the job by default was because he was the oldest son and in the system of feudalism, it, you know, a kingdom will always go to the oldest heir. Uh, so King Anu needed him to run the operation. Well, to make a long story short, um, he had nothing but venomous hatred for the creation of the beast, a.k.a. our human ancestors. Okay, Couldn't stand the sight of him, couldn't stand the sight of this solar system, couldn't stand being here in the first place. But by feudal law, his father told him, get your act together. I need you here. I don't give a damn whether you like it or not. Okay. 
We have to turn a profit, otherwise everybody else is going to come and rip us to pieces. So that put him in a very uh, uh, powerful conflict okay, um, with what was going on here. Um, eventually, as I, I talk about in the book here, um, and the reason I'm skipping ahead here is to answer your original question that you brought up before. Um, just before the Greys went back to the reptilian queens and said, we can't work with these lunatics. Okay, we can't work with the Canis feudal lords anymore. They're out of their damn mind. Um, and so the one who was in power at the time that they were trying to usurp was Prince Enlo. Well, just before the Greys booted him out with permission of the queens, um, Enlo proceeds to engage in a uh, a brainwashing program, okay, to make himself look like supreme ruler of all, okay. So he goes and initiates this brainwashing program with the primate slaves, um, puts them through the whole rigmarole, and basically brainwashes them with the idea that I am the supreme leader and it is forbidden to mention my real name anymore. From this day forward, you will refer to me uh, with the term GAD, G, little a, D, okay? And as such, um, GAD was a canine term, an extraterrestrial term for a totalitarian military dictator, okay? Over time, Gad becomes mispronounced as God. And this is where that word comes from. So when I say that phrase in the book that you read before, Nancy, that's mm -hmm. what I'm referring to, okay? Because the corporatism um, is tied right into the word God. So God is man-made and doesn't exist then? Uh, yes. Now, you want to talk about a more spiritual preference that unites us all together, the collective consciousness, whatever you want to call it, fine. Okay? But you keep using heinous and diabolical terms like God, and all of a sudden you go a long way to explaining why the Christians have all this problem with demonic possession, so to speak. And if you look at the way they describe their demons, what do they always look like? Bipedal, Komodo, dragons. In other words, reptilian or canines. Time and again, there is not one demon in alleged, supposed demonic possession that doesn't look like a reptilian or a canis feudal lord across the board. And that's because they keep drawing that energy into them there. Uh, I'll take it one step further. Why did Enlo create that screened racial and cell memory that was brainwashed all of our ancestors to this day with seeing God as the good guy, okay, when in fact he was a heinous dictator who hated the human race. Well, the reason he created that screened memory was because he needed something to erase the earlier information that had already been passed on to the Adam or the Sasquatch. And who gave it to the Adam? That was his brother who was brought in later on, the master geneticist known as Prince Aya, okay? Um, and yeah, but yeah, but now here, the, the thing is, the yeah. concept behind the the idea of God 
holds true, even if the individual templates kind of look screwed up. But the concept that there is something that created us and the universe, and there is a greater good instead of a greater bad um, that will triumph is, are you saying that the human race shouldn't believe stuff like that? I'm saying the human race creates its own reality, and that's why we call it the matrix. Okay? And when we finally get control of the matrix and we take back that power to manipulate matter around us at the subatomic level, just like they show in the movie The Matrix, then we're going to see something real about the universe that we never realized before. But we're not going to get there if we keep using childish, sadistic, and asinine terms like God. Well, how about if we didn't worry about that but didn't use childish, ridiculous, and asinine tools? For example, what if we stopped <clears throat> trying to collide two particles together at the speed of light through a mm -hmm. circle that looks like, a, you know, the circle that takes many, many miles? What if we just spent a little extra energy trying to mm -hmm. go and try to find the God particle within or some such thing? Um, spend that would be nice. Mm -hmm. That would be nice. But, you know... <laughs> Okay, Once so again. now are you, are you going to take us now to the next – okay, this is one sentence that I'm kind of basing a lot of these questions on. And, and you, okay. just covered, you just covered son of the mother, as I understand that, means working for the sisterhood basically, right? Yes, and also you know, coming back on behalf of Mother Earth and the more, um, you know, the more uh, ecological, environmental, and spiritual presence you know, to counteract – um, the corporate agenda that is all about the greed of basically right. strip mining the whole thing. Right, so. and, and, and also starting with the grid, the prison bar grid of the calendar and the hours, the hours that are laid on top of the calendar. And so you have this way mm -hmm. of just cutting your whole life into these little tiny squares. But anyway, so the next, yeah. part, of this, <clears throat> the next part of the sentence is this. George, I'm not, we won't go into who George is. George broadened my horizons with the ancient codex hidden within the legacies of Mars and Earth. Can you talk about that mm -hmm. a bit? Definitely, yes. Um, <laughs> once again, that's, uh, you're bringing up good questions here. It goes back to, um, once again, um, the time frame of uh, 2005 and 2006. George had had the person you're referring to in the book he also gave a presentation at that conference at that time and this was the first time he and i met and he was talking about the uh the geoglyphs of the sidonia codex on mars and how it directly relates to uh the bifurcated faces and and um um different um stone symbols uh, here on Earth in Mesoamerica, being Mexico and uh, the Incans, Aztecs, and the Mayans, okay, and the Olmecs. Well, when he started hearing me talk, um, all of a sudden his his eyes lit up. He's like, you know, wow, this guy's really getting into it there, and um, he he realized that a lot of the stuff that I was talking about. Uh, ran parallel to a lot of the research he had done on the Sidonia Codex and the geoglyphs on Mars. And most notably was when you uh, – he went well beyond 
the research of Richard Hogan and got into all these other geoglyphs that are on there that are, you know, you just, you, you can't turn a blind eye to it. You can't make excuses for it, even though the academics will try. And, um, well, has he, he been on, how, has he been in touch with Hoagland and has he been on his show and stuff? Actually, he had, um, when you go back to his very first book that he published, the first version of the Sidonia Codex, uh, Martian Reflections, Reflections from Mars, um, which was a red covered book that he put out in 2005, that already encompassed about 10 years of research, of which, um, I think Richard Hogan was one of the people who wrote. Uh, a preface or an introduction. He had a couple people do it. Richard Hogan was one of them. Then um, maybe about four or five years later, around 2008 or nine, um, he came out with the um, the Martian Codex, a blue-covered book that had even more information in it that he couldn't get into the first book because it was just too much. So he expanded on that even further. And then eventually recent, in recent years, in the last, oh, maybe so three, four years, he came out with a very special um, DVD presentation um, called the Mars Codex, um, which I strongly recommend. And I often rec- I recommend that in the book too. I even talk about that. Cool. But, um, and so, um, but yeah, that's how that hit off and we became fast friends. So what, so what? About. So what is the ancient codex hidden um, behind? Um. Well, the ancient codex is this, and I saw it as soon as he showed it to me. He talks about how to when when he finally the the amount of hoops he had to jump through to get the proper set of high res photos from Mars, okay, which is like a, a, just an ungodly task with the way NASA mangles it all the time on purpose. When he finally got a hold of the real genuine photos, uh, um, he showed what the starting just starting out basically with the rudimentary face on Mars before he even got into the more advanced stuff. Um, he did the bifurcated face, just like Mesoamerican faces here on Earth. And he says, "Here, look at this. Okay, um, you flip it one way, it looks like this. You flip it the other way." Guess what that looks like? And I took a close look at it, and I am—I I must have turned whiter than white in the face. I was like, "Holy cow, that looks just like a primate ancestor with mm-hmm. African features wearing the headdress of a pharaoh." Mm-hmm. And that sealed it for me because then looking at everything else, because I mean, all the stuff I talk about is how the Moorish legacy spread all over the planet. Mm-hmm. With all these different cultures, okay, and that there was no difference between um, the Olmecs or the Mayans or the um, uh, the Hindus or the Egyptians or the Chinese, okay, they were all sharing from the same pool of knowledge simultaneously. And um, what was the thing I was just thinking of here? The Olmecs, um, they the your your uh, your academics are like they love to bury this stuff under the rug because. They think there's no such thing as ancient archaeology in the Americas. And I got news for them. Um, the ton of stuff that went missing from the Eastern Hemisphere ended up in the Western Hemisphere for the sole purpose of dividing up the knowledge between the two halves so that it made it that much harder for the shadow government to wage psychological war against the beast or the consumer slave. You split up the knowledge between the different cultures. Olmecs, the mysterious race, 
which the academics seem to act like they're scratching their head and have no answer for, have definitive African features. And all they had to do was come across from South America on the jet streams. Why? Because we're talking about master mariners who know how to build a boat, a rather big boat, and come across the ocean, no problem, and hit South America. You know, we seem to have this absurd notion that uh, it was all about the, uh, the dark-skinned Mongolians that came across the Bering Straits. Well, some of them did, and, but some of them stopped dead in their tracks when they hit a whole bunch of snow up there and became the Inuit. The rest of them, the majority of them, came up from South America, and that creates a whole different perception as to how this all played out. Because from the Olmecs, they come up through South America, they become the Aztecs, the Incans, then become the Mayans, then become the Hopi, and it just spreads out from there. Okay, And that's why along the way, even though uh, all Native Americans, North America, South America, are sharing in the same pool of knowledge, this is why South American Native Americans were more sophisticated and more advanced than North American Native Americans – but you still see it as the technology went along and advanced northward, okay, it became less and less sophisticated. But a TP is still a pyramid, and a pyramid is still a TP. Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't it that the um, most of the South American Native American peoples actually established their own fully functional empires? And whereas in North America, a lot of that history was lost because of how the the United States really drove the Indians from their land. Spanish didn't do right. that, right? I mean, there's right. a basic difference in how the two um, Americas yes. were set. Yes, that's a good point you bring up there. The sophistication would have still been there to a certain point because in terms of what I talk about as land ownership, treaties, real estate, tradable commodities, okay, uh, the, the econ- even though the spiritual capital of this whole thing was always Egypt and by extension in, in some ways India and Sumeria, Iraq, okay, uh, the economic capital of the world had always been Morocco, it's in the name, City of the Moors, Land of the Moors, okay? And it is from that economic capital that you have all this trade that's spread out across the planet. And the ones who, once again, going back to the female principle and the feminine goddess energy, the ones who uh, kept all those treaties in line were the original clan mothers here in the Western Hemisphere, believe it or not. Original clan mothers, ancient clan mothers, okay? And you see this in modern-day Native American culture, putting aside all the domestic violence and alcohol addiction and bullshit that goes on on the reservation. The point is, in those tribal communal um, decisions, um, in the end of it all, it is the women that made the final decision in the tribe, not the men, okay? That has carried on still to this day. Very true, um, very true. um, among the Jewish people, considered another ancient culture, it's also mm-hmm. matrilineal. Matrilineal. Yes. 
What is the? Yes, it um, is. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. We're getting really close to the end here, and I think okay. it kind of I, I think it brings all this together. But don't you say elsewhere? Maybe I, I was kind of reading a bunch of different things today that you've written, and you say someplace that the um, sudden burst of knowledge, the sudden free exchange of information, all this hidden stuff, all this secret stuff, is suddenly there on the internet for those who want to try to find it. Is that part of a grand plan, do you think, and we should take advantage of? Yes, and basically it's a good point you bring up there because um, no matter how sophisticated we think our modern-day technologies are, including the sharing of the World Wide Web Internet, okay, um, it's just basically – Touching the tip of the iceberg, and to borrow a phrase from Sitchin, you know, revisiting Genesis. Okay, we're just going back to where we were because all of it had been taken away from us, and we had to crawl out of the muck and mire of what was forced upon us to get back to where we are now. But here's the problem. Okay, uh, do people know how to comprehend that information? Do they know how to ingest it? Okay, and this is where the dumbing down of the human race through the 80s, right on up to the year 2000, took place on purpose. What, what okay. do you mean by dumbing down? What, what has dumbed us down? <laughs> okay. Um, you have your pharmaceutical multinational poisoning the gene pool, turning us into a bunch of stunted morons who can't even put together an intelligent sentence anymore. Yeah, periods in between sentences. Right. Yeah, come on. Exactly. You know, I heard what you said before, and I was like, yeah, that's a big – uh, right? sticking point to me well, when I a see big, this yeah. generation. A big, well, a big sticking point is 140 characters uh, yeah. limitation in uh, uh, Twitter. It makes you into a either a poet Blab. or or a blabbering. Okay, so uh, in in um, chat, PJ has has sent, asked this. Kahokia, uh, C A H O. That's a tough one. That's a K I A. What is that? Kahokia. I know. Yeah. That was an an ancient city that I believe is sat where oh Chicago is today. Okay, Chicago was built upon the ruins of Cahokia, and they've already stuck uh, in Illinois. They've already started digging up uh, and excavating the ruins of that original central city, which was quite huge and mm. quite advanced compared to what was previously thought about the North American native tribes okay, and the clans. Um, all of a sudden, bam, here's this city that rivals Mayan cities. Okay, mm. Well, what the hell was this about? Well, it turns out when they started, when they, when they started doing the initial research that was coming out of that from like about mm, maybe – Oh, I think I first heard about it three years ago when it started getting spread around. Um, and um, it turns out it was a central point of ancient uh, Native American commerce where mm. all these different peoples from all over the world would come through that city much like the way they came through Ellis Island to get to New York City. Mm. Okay. Um, so that's what Cahokia is, and they're finding out more and more about that as time goes on. There's a, there's a lot more that will be revealed about that city that they're finding out every 24 hours is a new revelation. Because it was because it was on because it was on the lake. That's the that's yes. the whole point. It was well, on the lake, and it was too. on the, and it was on a. Cahokia became Chicago. That's the original name. Yes. 
I, I yeah. read recently, this is so weird, that I don't know when they did this, but in order to make the sewer system, probably the turn of last century, beginning of last century, they raised, they corkscrewed up the entire city of Chicago up four feet to put a sewer system in. And that was maybe nineteen ninety. Is that even possible? I know. And so, in the course of doing that, if they're that crazy, I've, Chicago is a strange place. If they're that crazy. True. That <laughs> that's true. Be, that's true, though. That's true. That might be how they found out that wow, we're sitting on top of something even more. Well, there are exquisite. There are Ooh. stories of ancient huh. cities underneath Chicago, yeah. and for yeah. example. The Chicago River, there was a hole in it, and the river was draining out, and they had to plug the stupid hole. That's Chicago. They couldn't okay. figure out how to do it. No, but, right. but uh, Cahokia was, became Chicago. That's where the name comes from. It's that word. It's an Indian word. Well, it's forcing people to realize that um, traditional archaeology has been lying through its teeth mm. because of this racist attitude against Native Americans that there couldn't be anything in terms of ancient archaeology that has anything to do with the Western Hemisphere and yet the Grand Canyon has proven that to be completely wrong. Okay? Mm, well, why? 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 Because yeah, why? when you talk to the Hopi Native Americans you find out about the um, ancient Sipapu. That's a name they use to represent a gateway or a portal that's built into the Grand Canyon that only they know about. Um, and so, you know, if someone like you and me was to try and go and find it, forget it. You would end up dead. And they warn you, don't try to find it yourself because if you trip across it by accident, you're gone. And supposedly, mm -hmm. uh, from the way they explain it, it's a portal that is um, guarded by either these uh, canine types that I described in the book or the reptilian types. And when you go, supposedly when you go into it, there are all these ancient gold artifacts with ancient writing on them that match Egyptian hieroglyphs on the other side of the planet and Sumeria. All this different stuff buried in there. Now, um, there's a couple of sipapoos like that. You know, I use that in general quotes there. And if you go back to the time frame of possibly the beginning of the 20th century, like the 1910s or the 1920s, if you could even do this with newspapers these days, you would find reports coming out of that area as well as Sedona and about these things that the U.S. military had found at the time that were beyond belief and in some cases – they were so terrified of the implication that they cleaned it out and then bombed the hell out of it to bury the cave. So, you know, these these are the things you can look into that correlate with the Sipapu. But that's, uh, I you know, have to, I have to lay in a correction for both Bill and for you, Richard. Um, uh, we have smart anyway. It's <laughs> our chat people can they they have the time while we're talking to and they said truly yeah. Google okay so it's not Chicago guys it's St Louis the town that oh St Louis St okay. Louis Cahokia is is built on is built on St Louis uh, same okay so and sorry. I tr I trust okay. I trust I, our chat and PJ I it's still by it's it's still associated with the Great Lakes though right yeah, true but it's just yeah. in other words well, it's, maybe, so, well, it's the yeah. Mississippi River. St. Louis is on yeah. the Mississippi right. River. It just takes away the sewer story. Now, mind you, talk about the Mississippi River, okay? Uh, in terms of people saying, oh, right. there's no way they could have brought ancient 
you know, artifacts across the ocean. Well, they did. There was a time where the Mississippi River was a lot wider than it is right now. And those boats that came across from the Eastern Hemisphere, all they had to do was shoot up the Gulf right into the Mississippi and head straight up to the Great Lakes and bam, there you go. Mystery solved. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, those, uh, those um, ancient clan mothers are the ones that made the deals and the treaties. And I point out in the book there that this is what, where we come into conflict with um, misconstrued terms like um, patriot, which is a very bad term. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking Hence, that very thing today. I was actually yeah. meant. I went on a little mental rant. It really ticks me off that a good word like that has now. It has to mean a really small-minded person who guards something with his life. It's crazy. Well, yeah, it's, it has uh, nothing to the, do with the, yeah. And the thing is, is that initially, the um, and this is part of the inspiration for the term "son of the mother" as well. The Sons were that that were originally known as the loyalists, which is you know the good term. They were the ones that were loyal to the clan mothers and the matriarchy and understood how the whole deal worked to keep the balance there between all continents on the treaties. Um, unfortunately, when Europe starts erupting out of nowhere with a vengeance to wipe the floor up with the human race. Um, they come uh, with this, you know, brazen, arrogant attitude of like, screw the treaties. I can do whatever the hell I want. And this is where the term patriot comes into the system. It was that other generation that went up against the loyalists and destroyed the clan mothers, henceforth destroying the treaties. Okay. And this is what sends the whole world into a downward spin. Because once those treaties were destroyed and the clan mothers and the female principal was wiped out, okay, then it was time for the corporate mentality to move in. And once America was, you know, duped into going that way, um, it became that much easier to sucker punch South America and Africa and China and Arabia. And, and look at we, – we're out of time. Yeah, look, we are out of time. Look at the, I just noticed. Look at the visuals of our current political party running for the president. We have a – perhaps two women on the ticket. It's going to be amazing. And yeah. versus a corporatist who is such a corporatist, he is as transparent <laughs> as can be. You know, I'm in it for me. Uh, that's what you hired. And um, let's just hope right. his, t- his taste involves peace and prosperity for everybody yeah, else. Hillary is in it for the money. Well, so well, they what? They both are. So what? I think I don't think she's in it for the money. You cannot continue to run for office and be in it for the money. It's too hard. The work. You is know how too much hard. she charges for speeches? It doesn't matter. Oh, she she's in it for she the doesn't money. charge that much, Angel. She is yeah, lucky she enough does, to get. Actually. No, no, she doesn't charge it. The prices are set by a um, a bureau of speakers bureaus. You know, it's two hundred and something thousand. It doesn't she's matter. It's an agency that sets the it's prices. I've got too much an agency. Money. That Way too much. Money. I always love to get two hundred thousand. That's no, for no, sure. No, no, no. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> it's the agency that gauges the market. I mean, I've got an agent that handles my speeches. If it were too and high. And I'll get anywhere from five to $10,000 for something or $2,500, depending upon the venue and depending upon the audience. Right, and when but you sometimes I don't set the price. The I'd get like 10 bucks, maybe 20 bucks. That's what oh, they'll give me. Anyway. It's, it's, anyway. That's, well, uh, so it's today not, on the news, you guys might like this. Um, while everything was going to hell in, with Brexit, okay, uh, with England, uh, Trump was over in Scotland promoting a couple of his golf courses. Right. And all, all he had to talk about was his new sprinkler system. Right, exactly. Right. That's what happened <laughs> the other day. Exactly. But I can, I can, I can He's a businessman. He's a businessman. Yep. But here's, here's, here's something that you should think about as you think about becoming a voter for this particular go-around. Trump has given his entire campaign over to his daughter, Ivanka. She's kind of running it. And she, I would think, would have stayed behind and started up something to organize stuff. But instead, she's there. And the optics of Ivanka, who is – she's being sued right now for, for, for a shoe situa- situation she's in. She's wearing really, really, really high heels, and she's, like, going across the grass. And it's an optic of – I mean, even British royalty would know enough to put on a pair of Wellington boots and just stride (laughs) confidently across the grass. It is demeaning to a golf course. I I noticed that it was incredible, and it's her father's golf course. But I'm just saying – And she's actually making divots in – in the turf. Yeah, well, anyway, so, so, so let's not get political. Okay, but let's not get political. But we are at a time. So it is after midnight. Okay, guys, so guys, wait, everybody, wait, wait, uh, wait, I, I want to thank our guest, Richard Smith, for joining thank us you. tonight. And congratulate uh, you, you on your book. And good luck with it. Thank you for having me. Yes. Oh, sure. It was our pleasure. And um, I want everybody to, to stay tuned um, for Compassion of the Desert. And stay tuned at one o'clock. At, at one o'clock for Compassionate Wolf on PSN Radio. So Midnight wait, in the Desert on um, the um, Dark Matter Digital Network comes up next. And at one o'clock, this is Monday night. Um, you will hear um, Compassionate Wolf. Compassionate Wolf okay, but, on but PSN Radio. I want to tell folks who our guest is next week. Who our guest is next John week? Alexander. <laughs> John Alexander. John Alexander. Alexander. On Ooh. July fourth. Yeah. On July 4th, we're going to be hosting John Alexander um, talking about um, well, his let's article. Talk, let's that talk he wrote. about all this tonight that we talked about tonight. Let's just ask some questions of John Alexander, well, who kind of represents the industrial military. Except part. ostensibly, we'll be talking about Orlando because of John Alexander's oh. uh, column in Huffington Post. So we'll have a lot of discussion about that. So. Um, I shouldn't say so, but we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Good night, everybody. Thank saying good night from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solberry Village, Pennsylvania on Thank you, Chris. Future Theater. Thank you, Chris Brown. Thank, thank you, you. And thank you, Jaffe Ryder, because it was him that actually Jaffe helped Ryder to guess. Yeah. Yeah, oh, we have to okay. learn. So, we have to yeah. meet this fellow. Meet this fellow and learn who we he do. is. Yeah. Shout out to Jaffe Ryder. Yeah. What this a is, cool name, Jeffy Ryder. Yeah. And I wanted to make, and I did say I was going to make a mental tattoo of that uh, to say that, uh, give him props for getting Richard on the show. Good yeah. job, buddy. Good job. I did that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So Thank from you. Future Theater on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio, we are your co-hosts, Bill and Nancy Burns, saying good night, everybody. Um, happy end of June. We'll see you next Monday on July 4th.